Imran Laka, founder of Options Insight. Welcome to Forward Guidance. Thanks for having me, Jack. Good to see you. Imran, you are a veteran in the options market. It's been trading them for, for a long time. I want you to put on a clinic for my viewers today. What I want you to do is, you know, typically when people, there's in terms of options content, there's, you know, the very beginner content, what is a call, what is a put, and then on the other side of the spectrum, it's people talking about Volga and, and all sorts of squeezes and the stuff. I want you to bridge the gap between that. Uh, and really the question I want to start is, Imran, why use options? Say someone who's a, you know, investor watching this channel right now, they know that you know when commodities go down, the dollar goes up. They know that bonds are typically a risk-off thing. They maybe know a little bit about duration, about correlations, about sectors. Maybe they follow some some annual reports, some specific companies, but they don't know anything about options. They're like, oh, options—that's kind of just speculative. That's gambling. Why? Why do people use options? Why is options a legitimate you know use of of you know financial knowledge? So the first reason I would say is leverage, but safe leverage. Right, because you can get leverage trading futures, right? Uh, and a lot of people do, and then a lot of people blow themselves up. So, what people what people can do with options is they can get exposure to an asset with a pretty limited amount of capital, right? Which is just the premium. And if they get the move that they're looking for in the asset, so it's a directional view on an asset. You're taking a directional view, just like you would if you bought a stock or you bought a future or you sold a future position, whatever it is. Um, but you have a small amount of money at risk, right? And you know that between now and the expiry of that option, if you buy the option, that's the most you can lose, okay? Which is pretty, you know, valuable, right? In terms of your risk management, you know with certainty you're going to lose the premium and nothing more. So you can then size your position according to what you're comfortable losing. Is it 10 basis points in my portfolio? Is it 100 basis points in my portfolio? Whatever it is, and that's really that safe leverage to take a directional view on an asset is what options give you, right? That's the first reason, right? There's other ones that we can go through. But for me, that's, uh, that's a big one. And uh, examples of that have been, you know, a lot of retail people getting excited about these big trends in tech and stuff like that over the years. And the meme stock, the craze, the meme stock craze, right? Which was people buying weekly calls on things that they thought they were going to squeeze. And... Yeah, I think it was a bit misguided and clearly a lot of these guys have lost quite a bit of money doing those type of trades, but they were profitable at a place and a point in time for certain people and all they were ever going to lose when they did that trade initially was the premium and they made multiples of, pre of that premium, right? In some cases, maybe even 100x, I think, right? For If we look at some of the GME stuff that went on last year. Yeah, so a call is the right but not the obligation to buy a certain asset at a certain time, a put the right but uh, not the obligation to to sell something, and the premium is what you pay for that right. Imran, I want to ask you a question, which is, you said that it's leverage, but it's safe leverage. How is that? It seems like, you know, safe leverage, it kind of seems like you're cheating death. How can options do that? Now, when I say safe leverage, I guess what I'm saying is, when you, when you take a leverage position, on an asset in a futures account, right? Or a spread betting account or something like that. And you have to post a certain amount of margin and you can take quite large positions relative to your account size. There can be freak events, right? There can be freak flash crashes, random news events you weren't expecting that suddenly make the, the asset gap, right? It doesn't actually trade at the level where you might have a stop loss put in there which you think is your safety cushion. I've got a stop, I'll get stopped out, it's fine. 
Well, if you carry that position overnight and the market gaps, maybe your stop is executed at a horrible level that blows up your entire account, right? And your account balance goes from X to zero or even negative because your, your execution was so bad, right? And, and the, the broker's asking you for more money and things like that, right? So these are the risks that are associated with taking leverage bets in futures in a linear product like that, right? When you have non-linear products like options, you know that even in that gap, yeah, the option price will go to zero. But I knew that up front and I paid the premium knowing it could go to zero. So my account balance is left completely untouched and unscathed basically, right? So that's that's the beauty or the, it's not like cheating death, but it's just yeah. the asymmetry. It's the asymmetry that options give you in their payoff that allows you to have that kind of comfort basically. So that's the first use of options. What are the other, other two? The next one to sort of um, talk about would be hedging, okay? So you might have a portfolio with a bunch of risk to equities or whatever, and you don't really want to exit your, your exposures. You like your exposures, you've done a load of research on those exposures, you, you, you kind of, you've done some stock selection as well, but for the next three months, the macro landscape looks horrible, okay? So rather than just exiting all of your exposures um, that you've spent all this time researching and, and on, on a five-year horizon, you love them, you want to manage your drawdown to the market because that's part of your day job, right? You, you kind of, you get extra credit for having a portfolio that doesn't have a 20, 30% correction in it, basically, right? If you navigate those types of moves, then that improves your sharp ratios, that improves your portfolio alpha that you're bringing to the table, and you'll get more AUMs over time and things like that, right? So using option hedges around a portfolio enables you to do that, right? You, you have a budget, you have a hedging budget, you say how many basis points or whatever you're willing to spend on your hedge, knowing that that may well go to zero and you actually like the scenario where that goes to zero because it means the market didn't bother correcting and carried on going, and your portfolio is doing well, but in the adverse outcome that the market sells off dramatically and your macro fears get realized, that's when your hedge comes into play, makes you a ton of money that you are then able to monetize against the losses you've taken on your broader portfolio. And that's, that's the whole point of, of options hedging. And, and generally, it's, well, it's put protection that you're buying typically, right? You buy puts, they are the right to sell. You typically use macro assets like indices because you just want broad macro market exposure. Um, you're not trying to buy puts on every single name that you own in terms of single stocks because it's just cumbersome. You might as well just buy the index puts. Um, and that's a large part of the flows that go up in the market, right? Index options are dominated by portfolio hedging flows. I've got a question for you. Uh, which is, so let's say I own Apple and you're saying, oh, Jack, you can hedge your portfolio by buying, you own you know, a few shares at Apple, you can buy a put option on Apple that hedges your risk. Why not just sell my Apple? It, it, isn't it kind of like, you know, owning Apple and then owning puts on Apple, isn't it kind of like having a humidifier and then a dehumidifier in the same room? Yeah, I mean, it, it's just different scenarios, right? Like you can own Apple because you think it's got upside, but if you're wrong and it drops a lot, you don't want to get carried out. Right. So that's that's what it is like you're by owning the stock and owning a put against it. You're just you're hedging that tail, basically. Right. So you're willing to write off one or two percent premium, whatever it is. Right. If the stock rallies another 10, 20 percent, you don't care about the premium that you tore up. 
because it's still doing well. If it, if it drops by 5 or 10%, assuming you bought a 10% put, let's say, 10% out of the money put, assuming it drops by 10%, that's a drawdown that you, you're comfortable stomaching, let's say, because it's a long-term trade and you believe it will recover or whatever. But if it dumps more than 10%, you don't want to be in a situation where you've dropped 30 40% on your holdings, right? And to, to eliminate that possibility, if all you've got to do is spend a couple of percent, that makes that worthwhile, basically, right? It's really, you're hedging the uncertainty. If you were certain the stock's going down, you'd just sell it, right? But you don't, you don't have that certainty. You wanna own the stock, you like the stock for a number of reasons, but what you're doing is you're hedging the uncertainty. You're hedging the idea that something comes along that derails your macro view or your micro view, in this case for Apple, and you wanna protect that outcome that you don't believe is high probability, but just in case you do it to protect your portfolio, to protect your capital. And, and over the long run, trading in that way and, and using options will make you a better investor because your risk adjusted returns will be far greater than the average. Yeah. Right. And when you own a stock and you own puts on it, you create a blended exposure that's not just to the delta, not just to the stock, but it's to the volatility, it's to the, the, the timing, the path dependency of it. Can you speak to the value of just having different exposures that are not just pure exposure to the stock, but to other lesser understood uh, financial uh, exposures? Yeah, so we've mentioned the directional exposure an option has, right? Ultimately, whether it goes up or down in value, will be determined in a large part by the direction of the asset, whether the asset goes up or down. But the beauty of options is you have the ability to take a view on other parameters, and those parameters are volatility parameters, okay? So you might not have a directional view on the underlying of the asset, where it's gonna go. But what you might have a view on is that the volatility of it is gonna go much higher or much lower, okay? So you, the beauty of options is you can take a view you can isolate your view. You can say, I don't have a view on the direction. I don't have to take a view on the direction, but I can take a view on the direction that the volatility will go, right? And when I'm talking about volatility, I'm talking about implied volatility, which is the market's expectation of the future volatility of the asset. And that in itself is a number that moves around on a daily basis. And that is a number that you are exposed to when you have an option position. So when you buy optionality, you buy, yeah, when you, whenever you buy an option on an asset, you are long, i.e. you want the implied volatility to go up, right? Because if the implied volatility goes up, the option premium will go up. Even if the asset doesn't move, if the, if the market's perception of how much it will move goes up, which is what the implied volatility is, then you'll make money naturally through the repricing of the option to reflect that higher implied vol. And your exposure to the change in implied volatility changes with the duration of the option, right? So if you have a put on Tesla, or let's say a call on Tesla, you know, uh, and it's it expires in January 2023, if implied volatility goes from like 50 to 60, that will you know make you a, a hefty chunk of change that may even offset a small, you know, uh, uh, fall in the stock. But if you own uh, a, a, a call on Tesla that expires this this week, it's not going to make you a difference because, you know, 
your exposure is primarily to the change in the, in the actual price, right? Exactly, right? So that, that exposure to implied volatility is called Vega. That's the Greek that is Vega. And your Vega in an option grows if the more long dated that option is. So a one week option has next to no Vega in it. So that means the price change of that option for a move in implied volatility will be very, very low. And it will be massively swamped by the other parameters like time decay and, and delta, which is your change in spot prices. But a, a one year, two year, five year option will have a really large chunk of Vega in it. And the Vega will actually be a large determinant in how the value of that option changes. So if you see a significant move in implied vol on a five year option, that's gonna have a really large impact in how that premium moves. And it may, like you say, it may overwhelm what the premium's doing because of changes in spot prices and things like that. Imran, I wanna take a, a quick look at some slides from your options trading uh, bootcamp, which I was actually lucky enough to, to be a member in, which I, I learned a lot from. And let's take a look at the, you know, the, sh the shape of the payoff structures of calls and puts, as well as the underlying stock, long or short, and how you can blend those to create exposures that you know, investors who don't uh, 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 trade options don't have, don't have access to. So like you said before, right, the definition of a call option is that it is the right to buy, but not the obligation to buy an asset at a fixed price at a given maturity date. And so because of that optionality, because you have the choice, you don't have just the 45 degree line, which is what you would have in the payoff of just being long the stock. So for example, if I bought the stock at 100, then I would just have a 45 degree line through 100. And if the stock went up, I would make $1 for every dollar that the stock went up. And if the stock went down, I would lose $1 for every dollar that it went down, okay? Now having the option to buy at 100 is different because if the stock goes down, between now and maturity of the option, let's call it in three months time, and it's now trade, it went from $100 the stock to maybe $80. Well, I'm not gonna exercise my option to buy it at 100 when the stock's currently trading at 80. I'll just buy the stock at 80 if I wanna buy the stock, right? So the payoff of that option is zero because you don't end up making that choice to buy the stock, right? Meaning your call, you're, meaning your call option expires worthless because your option expires worthless, but the idea is the reason you don't lose money in the payoff, which is the blue line, the blue, the blue discontinuous line that you're sharing, the reason you don't lose any money is because you, you, didn't, you didn't buy the stock at 100 because you had the option not to, basically. All right? Now, if the stock then rallies to 120 in that time, then obviously you're going to exercise the option. You're going to buy the stock at 100, which is the right that you, you had to buy it. And you're gonna make that $20 from the difference between 100 and 120, right? So that's why we have this discontinuity because at that strike price, which is 100, you have a choice. You have a choice that you can buy it or not. And, you'll, and whether, you, whether you exercise that choice or not will, deter, will be determined by where the stock actually ends up being, right, at expiry. Right, and... Uh... Thinking, let's uh, let's actually, yeah. Can you, can you walk us through the the put option as as well? So the put option is just the flip side, right? So it's the right, but not the obligation to sell the asset at the strike price, okay, at expiry. So this time, because you have the right to sell, you'll exercise that right to sell if the stock goes down, because then you get to sell it at the higher price of a hundred, okay. So that's why it's a bearish position. It points to the way the P and L is on the way down. You don't make any money on the way up. 
but you make money on the way down, right? And, and you can think of it, it puts as an insurance, right? We talked about hedging. So they're, they, they're like a way of insuring your portfolio, okay? And the premium that you pay, because we were talking about payoffs before being that blue hockey stick line, that, that's what they call it, the hockey stick shape. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the true payoff is actually has to reflect the fact that the option costs you something to buy. So you then shift that payoff down by the amount of the premium. Yeah, but these are all things obviously that are in the course and you're kind of showcasing. Right, and Imran, you said, uh, so by the way, I should say uh, P&L is profit and, and loss. So it's just how much money you make or lose. And you don't lose anything except when you take into account the premium, which as you say, is the green line. Imran, Tell me about, you said exercise an option. That's a sort of a simple way to calculate the, I think the time value of an option or, right? Is that, is that what it's called? So, so every option can be broken down into two components, right? Intrinsic value and time value. But what do those mean, right? Um, intrinsic value in, in the simplest sense is just how in the money is the option right now? If it was, if it was expiring today, what would it be worth? So from a call options perspective, that hockey stick that we talk about, if the stock is anywhere from strike down, right, or anywhere strike or below, then what's the intrinsic value going to be? Nothing, because if it was expiring today, it wouldn't be worth anything, right? If the stock's above the strike price, that's when it will have intrinsic value, which is because we'll be riding up that hockey stick, that 45-degree line, right? So your intrinsic value is just whatever the option would be worth if it was expiring today. But the reality is that's not the price at which options are trading today, right? Today, if I'm buying an option that expires in three months and it's got some intrinsic value and it's, it's, the spot is above the strike, it's worth something if it was expiring today, but it's not expiring today. Well, it's actually worth more today than it will be if we stay here until expiring. And that distance that it is above the intrinsic value that's what we call time value. So in that graph, you can see that the blue curve is reflecting not only the intrinsic value, but also the time value, right? And it's the different, that excess gap that that blue curve sits above the black hockey stick, that's what reflects the time value of an option. And you can see that that time value of the option is different for different levels of spot. So when we were, when we were near strike, it's got a lot of time value, right? That distance is quite wide. And when we go away from strike, that distance goes down. Right, and uh, now let's look at what actually affects those prices of the option. So the, the spot price movement really determines the intrinsic value, right? So we've got that spot price feeding into the forward price, feeding into the option price, right? So if spot goes up a lot, the option is going to have loads of intrinsic value. If spot goes down a lot, it's going to have none if it's a call option. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so really, it's just the spot that determines the intrinsic value. Where is the spot in relation to the strike? Yeah. The other two, the other two Greeks or the other two parameters, vol, implied vol, and time, they're the ones that feed in to the time value. Okay. Now the time one's pretty straightforward. The more time the option has till expiry, the more time value it's gonna have, right? That should be fairly intuitive to understand, all right? The implied vol is slightly less intuitive, but think about it like this. The implied vol is the market's expectation of how much the asset's gonna move. If for whatever reason, 
the market expected the asset would just sit here until expiry, then that would be zero, right? That vol would be zero in the extreme case. So then there's no need for the option to have any time value because if the volatility is zero, we know where we're gonna be at expiry. We're gonna be right here. So whatever the intrinsic value is what the option's gonna be worth. So we wouldn't have any time value if vol was zero, right? If vol on the other hand was 100 and the stock's winging around, you know, eight to 10% a day, whatever it is, then there's so much time value in that option because there's so much uncertainty and we could be miles away from strike when we get to expiry because the asset moves around All right. so much. Imran, let's go back to the basics of how people would use options. So we know we got a call, we got a put. Those are like the salt and pepper of the options world. And we can, but we can blend them together to create exposures that, that we're looking at right now. So we got straddles, we got strangles, we got butterflies. How do people, number one, how do people construct these positions? And number two, more importantly, why would someone want to create an exposure like this? Why would someone want to be long a straddle or short a strangle, long a strangle or short a strangle? Great, great, yeah. So, so straddles and strangles are just buying options of different, like buying two options, buying the call and the put. If it's a straddle, you're buying the same strike. So you're buying the same strike call and the same strike put. If it's a strangle, you're just buying out of the money options. So you're buying an out of the money call and an out of the money put, okay? But you're buying both, right? And you can see from that, those, those payoff diagrams on the straddle and the strangle, you don't really care which direction the asset goes. The asset can go up, it can go down, but the only way you're gonna make money and be above zero in the y-axis, which is your P&L, or your payoff, let's say, and that's your P&L in this case, the only way you're gonna be there is if we move. We need to move a lot, we need to move enough, right? So if you're a buyer of straddles and strangles, you're a buyer of volatility, right? It's a volatility strategy. The motivation to do it is, I don't know which way we're going, I just know we're going, right? I just know we're gonna move. And the way I get exposure to that view, and if I'm right, I make money, is by owning the straddle or the strangle, basically. Oh yeah, what, what about a risk reversal? Or a collar, as we call it in the US? Yeah, so risk reversals and collars are hedging structures primarily, right? So remember I said people buy puts to hedge their portfolios, right? Well, they, they basically often don't want to spend the premium of those puts, right? The premium of those puts is expensive. You're buying them every month or every three months. It starts to grind away at your portfolio performance, right? Especially if the market doesn't do too much. So often what they do is they sell call options to get some premium back to cheapen the cost of their hedging. They can afford to sell those call options because it's like a covered call because you own the stocks anyway. So if you sell a one 10% call against your stock holdings, you're only gonna have to sell out your stock holding up 10% in a matter of months. You might be comfortable with that. If you're comfortable with sacrificing that upside, then it makes sense for you to sell those calls which allow you to then buy the puts that give you the protection that you need. Right. Okay. The, that makes sense. Now let's see, Imran, let's see if I can choose one of your quiz questions. I'm going to choose one of the ones that doesn't have math in it. Cause I don't want to do math. Okay. So let's do number three. If I'm short a put and spot price goes down, do I make or lose money? Okay. You're short a put. That means you basically sold an insurance contract that it won't go down. So if it goes down, you lose money. Right? Yeah. 
Okay, B, what if implied volatility goes down? Do I make or lose money? Well, you're short a put, so you're short, short convexity. So if implied volatility goes down, you make money. Yeah, well, I would have I would have rephrased it and said you're short vega, not short convexity. Because convexity gets thrown around a lot by options players, like, and it's got multiple meanings, right? So I'd rather just use the word vega. That's when you're short an option, you're short vega, right? If the implied vol of that option goes down, you're gonna make some money from that vega component, basically. All right, Imran, let's hop on a plane. I'm gonna I'm gonna fly to London and I'm gonna meet you. You're gonna hop on the plane and we're going to we're going to Greece, okay? Let's talk about the Greeks. Let's start, let's start with the simple one. Delta. What is delta and how can you relate it to uh, owning a stock, a simple linear position or shorter stock. Yeah, so just think of it as, you know, the option is a product that is priced depending on where the asset goes, right? So your sensitivity of the option premium to the asset going up or down, that is your delta. So you get, and that's why people delta hedge their options using stocks or futures, because the idea is you are trying to replicate how many stocks or how many futures contracts I would need to achieve the same change in price or change in value as the option, right? So the option delta determines that. When an option's way out of the money, it has very little delta. When an option's fully in the money, it has the same delta as a stock or a futures position. When it's somewhere in the middle, then that's when the delta is more variable, right? The delta might be 50%, 60, 70, 30, whatever it is, right? So that delta is not continuous. That delta is a function of how in the money the option has become. When an option's at the money, i.e. the spot is trading at the strike, then the delta is typically around 50%, which is 0.5, so half. So it participates. The idea is that if the stock goes up a dollar, a 50 delta option will participate in half of that upside. So the stock goes up by a dollar, but the option will only go up by half a dollar because it's only a 50 delta option, right? As that delta changes, that participation that the option premium has to moves in the spot price can go higher if we go in the money, or it can go lower if we go out the money. Right, so if I own a call option of Apple that has a delta of 50, I own 50 shares, and that's why I can sort of, you get that uh, uh, risk-free leverage, or not risk-free, but you, you, get that, uh, you get that leverage, right? You'll get 50 shares because a option is a right to buy 100, con uh, one contract is the right to buy 100 shares. So if I bought that from you, Imran, a market maker, when you sold that contract to me, let's say uh, it's a 50 delta option of, of Apple's at 170, if the price of the spot price goes from 155 to 170, the delta is going to be greater because it's going to go more in the money. So you're going to have to buy more delta, buy more Apple to hedge your position. Exactly. Uh, how much leverage can you get on options? You can get a lot more, right? And how does that relate to the delta relative to how much you you pay for the option relative to the spot price? Like if I get uh, 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 I buy one contract of an Apple call option with a delta of 0.5, that's like I own 50 shares. How much more expensive would it be to actually own the 50 shares? And does that depend on the expiry of the option? Yes. Yeah, so, so, I mean, look, what was, yeah, it definitely depends on the expiry of the option, right? Because if the option expires in a week, the premium is going to be very small, right? If the option expires in a year, 
premium is going to be much, much more. So, so the, the, the premium that you spend effectively determines the leverage that you get, basically, right? But like when you, when you leverage a futures position, you know exactly what your P&L is going to be if the market goes up by X amount or down by X amount, right? The thing about options is whilst they give you that access, that leverage to the position, and the more out of the money and the more short dated, the more leverage you get basically, right? Because the more short dated means a cheaper premium, the more out of the money means cheaper premium. So you can have a one week, one 10% call in most stocks and it'll cost you basis points, right? Because not many stocks are priced to have any reasonable likelihood of being up 10% in a week, okay? Only super high vol stocks are, okay? So if you did that, you can pretty much say most of the time you're just, you're just writing off that money, basically. You're not gonna get paid for that. But on the off chance, there's a piece of news on that stock that makes it go up 20, 30%. You literally paid basis points, right? You might have paid, let's say you paid 10 basis points and all of a sudden, the stock's gone 10% through your strike. How much leverage have you got? 100x, right? You spend 10 basis points times 10, times 10, yeah? That is 100x leverage, okay? Now you don't know you've got 100x leverage up front because you don't know how much stock's gonna move, right? It's kind of variable, it depends, right? Like if the stock goes mental, you're gonna have amazing leverage, right? If the stock grinds up towards one, the one 10% strike in a week, you might make no money, right? So that's the problem with options, right? Don't get me wrong, options are great in a lot of ways, but they, you can have situations where you were right about the stock rallying and you made no money with the call option because the rally happened too slowly, right? It didn't happen soon enough and the option didn't pick up any value for you or it didn't go intrinsic where it had some intrinsic value, right? So that, that's the thing, you've got to consider all these factors so just to answer the question, like what's my leverage ratio on that call? It's not, it's not black and white like that, unfortunately, with options. Yeah. Let's let's talk about like a protective put. You, you we started at the beginning. You said, oh, I want to hedge my portfolio. I own Apple, but I want to buy put options on Apple. What would the different Greeks look like? And also maybe you, you can provide a little bit of color on on gamma, vega, theta, that because I kind of brushed over them. Sure, sure. So you know, very very bog standard typical hedging strategy is. I'm nervous, I need protection, what can I do? Or right, I'll buy a put, okay? Um, number of considerations that go along with that are which strike put should I buy, right? So um, typically, looking at just that round number strikes, like 95%, 90%, 85%, where do I want my protection to kick in? All right, right? 95% of the money. So if it's a socks 100, the current, struck at 95, struck at 90, struck at 80. Yeah, of the current spot price, 95% of it, yeah. yeah. So that, that that's one, one very simple, basic way people think about it, right? Like, okay, where do I want protection kicking in? Down five, down 10, whatever it is, okay? It's a very sort of basic way of thinking about it. A more sophisticated way of thinking about it might be what delta put do I want to own, right? So do I want to own a 10 delta put? Do I want to own a 25 delta put? And, and the reason to kind of look in delta space, right, in terms of determining which option I want, is it allows you to measure different assets. If you look in delta space, so you can, that makes it a lot easier to make that relative value decision. Um, and then also you can think of it as like, well, how much of my actual exposure do I want to neutralize? If I buy a 25 delta put, 
in the same notional as my as my portfolio holdings, that's going to neutralize roughly a quarter of my delta exposure because it's a 25 delta put, 0.25, right? If I buy a 50 delta put, it's going to neutralize half my exposure. So I can, if that's the way I want to risk manage my book, I can then decide what delta options I want to buy based on how much delta I want to neutralize, basically. Yeah. Um, other things to think about is like leverage. The more downside you go, if you go to an 80% put or a 70% put, they're going to cost you next to nothing, but all they're going to give you is crash protection, right? They're not going to make you any money in a down 5 or 10 scenario, but in a down 30, 40, they're going to bail you out and make you loads of money relative to what you paid for them, basically, right? So the motivation to buy those puts might not be that you actually think they're going to work. It's just you need to be able to sleep at night that if something crazy happened in the world and, and stocks dumped 20, 30%, you'd be covered basically, right? And, that, and, and people have mandates where they kind of have to buy those options because they need to make sure in all unforeseen circumstances, they're not going to drop more than X amount due to kind of capital requirements and, you know, tier one ratios and all these things all these fancy terms that are thrown around, but basically it's insurance companies, right? They need to make sure they're going to be able to service their liabilities and therefore they need to have those puts in place. Yeah. And a protective put, you buy it struck at 95% out of the, uh, in the money. Stocks at 100, you buy it at 95. If the stock crashes to 50, you make a ton of money. If it crashes to 30, you make even more money. It's you uncapped to how much money the puts make when it goes down. That is unlike the next thing, which is a put spread. What is this and how is it different than a, just a naked put? Yeah, I mean, we didn't talk about the Greeks of the protected put and, and things like that, but it's fine. We don't need to go into all the detail. But the idea just in simplest terms is like the put's too expensive, right? Like the vault, the implied vault might be high you know the odds are you're gonna just be burning that premium and you're never gonna see it again. And you don't like that aspect of it. It's bleeding theta at a very fast rate. That's the time decay because it's on a high volatility. So you're saying, how do I get protection on? But how do I cheapen it up? And how do I have something that I think's got much better odds of surviving and actually not just evaporating in two weeks? and actually holding some value basically, right? So that's why you're going to a put spread because you're saying, well, I'll buy a put, but I'll sell a put behind it with a lower strike. So I won't have unlimited protection if the market was to go to zero, right? But there's, no, there's not a lot of point in hedging that scenario in, in most things. Um, so you say to yourself, what's a realistic sell-off? How much might it go down? And once it's down 20%, I don't mind my protection kind of ending there because I'm happy to be long in the market down 20%. And so you do a put spread by, by buying something like a 95% put and maybe selling something like an 80% put. There we go. So you're kind of sandwiched your, your hedge in between those two strikes. Yeah. And you alluded to something earlier, which is when you have a, a put spread, it's hard to monetize because you're short skew. That's because you're buying a put option at 95% uh, of the spot price, but then you're selling a put option at, I don't know, 75%. And the 75% put option more out of the money is going to have a higher implied volatility. So when the market crashes, that's going to spike higher. And that, that's skew, right? Or am I wrong? Yeah, that's not the logic. The logic isn't that the volatility on that downside strike is definitely going to spike higher. That's not the logic. Think, just think of it this way, right? Um, the put spread is 15% wide, 95, 80%, okay? Right? The market goes down to 80% tomorrow, 
is the put spread going to be worth 15%, right? Which is the most it can be worth. And that's what it would be worth at expiry down there, right? If we go there tomorrow, but it's a three month put spread, is it going to be worth 15% tomorrow, do you think? Um, I would say no, but I can't exactly uh, say why. Because the option that you're short isn't worth nothing, right? It's got a ton of time value on it, basically, right? So, so the put spread is the kind of trade that wants to go down, but it needs to stay there, right? Because, and what happens normally when we crash 15%, do you think the market's still going to be down there in two or three days or not? It could, it could rebound. I should say, yeah, that's the, your risk is not that it goes down further and that you're short a put option. You're covered because you own the longer dated, uh, the, the more in the money put option. Your risk is that it bounces back. Exactly. And, and the issue that you have is you spend X amount on the put spread. The market absolutely crashes down to your short strike because the implied vol on your short strike probably does spike. Don't know how much, but it probably spikes. It has a load of time value on it. And you're short that option. So if you're trying to unwind that put spread, you're going to be monetizing, selling out your option that's deeply in the money, but you'll be buying back this option with loads of time value on it and actually is quite a high premium now, which means you won't be, you won't be monetizing that 15% that was promised to you basically because of that, that cost of buying back that short option, right? Whereas had you just bought the 95% put by itself, and we dumped down to 80%, you would get the whole 15% intrinsic value of that option that, you, you know, the value of that 95% put would be worth 15%. And it'd be worth a little bit more because the time value would still have some time value in it, basically, even though it was quite out, it was quite far away, it would still have some time value in it. So right, because the, the risk that it would bounce back higher would be more than offset by the fact that you're long the risk that it would go down even more. It's not, a, it's not about the risk of whether we're going to go up or down. It's about can, how much is the option value increased by? If you're going to buy a hedge, you want it to blow up and, and, and make multiples of what you spent on it, right? If you buy a put spread that's promising to make 15% and it costs you 3% to buy it, it's promising to make you five times the money, 3 to 15, right? But if the market dumps tomorrow and it only makes you two or three times your money, it's not doing what it's promised you, right? Because we have to stay down there for another three months, right? Let's say it was a three month put spread, yeah? Looking at the outright put, the 95% put, you know, if that, if that thing costs you whatever, 5%, and then the market dumps, that thing blows up in value, okay? Because not only do you go intrinsic, the vol explodes, all sorts of stuff, all hell breaks loose. And you can sell it at a price that reflects that it's done three, four, five X or whatever it's done basically, right? So it's that ability to sell it out in the crash, monetize the protection. That's what the outright put gives you. And that's what the put spread kind of misses out on. And, and the reason why is because you, you tried to cheapen it up. You tried, you were tight with your money. You didn't want to spend it, right? Didn't want to spend all your theta. You're being tight, so you shouldn't expect to get the same benefits and rewards in a crash that the outright put gave you, basically. Everything's a trade-off in options, right? That's what you've got to realize. Yeah, and I'll, I'll finally put on a, this final chart of what, whether your view is short delta, long delta, long vega, short vega, and the different positions uh, you can go on. This is, this is a wonderful chart. I don't think we'll have time to, to get into it now, Imran. Um, mm. I want to uh, sort of just 
del delve into into the macro. So we we talked about why we'd use options. Uh, how how do you think that what we've talked about so far has has put in play over the past two to three months? Because you've had a big time sell off uh, in stocks and in bonds, uh, which is interesting because the correlation there should be negative, but it's been positive. Bonds really have not served as a protective put. You know, people talk about bonds as a a positive carry put. It's a put that yeah. pays you, but it actually has not been that. <laughs> no, I mean, it hasn't been that for a year, right? But I mean, it was that for many, many years. It was yeah. incredible. It was incredible protection. And that's why risk parity did so well, right? But yeah, I mean, in the, in today's sort of market, it's a tricky one in equities, right? Because markets have been trading down and it looks like volatility is going up a lot, right? You see the VIX at 30-something. You're like, oh, wow, people who are long vol must have killed it, right? But I think you've spoke to enough people to know better than that in that if you've owned fixed strike volatility, right, which is owning vanilla options on the S&P, even though the market's traded down, the implied vol of the options that you own, and that's really what determines your Vega P&L. You know, it, what the VIX is doesn't determine my P&L if I'm long a 95% put on the S&P. What matters to me is what the vol of that put does, okay? And if the market drifts lower and the VIX goes up, but the fixed strike volatility of the option that I own hasn't budged or has even gone down, which we have seen happen, then... I make no money on Vega. I make a bit of money on Delta maybe because the put is short Delta, but the whole vol component that I'm looking for, that convexity that you talk about, that, that, that really explosive leverage that optionality gives me in a crash, done nothing for me, right? So, so that's, that's something you've got to be aware of. And, um, and in that world, and, and why is that happening? Well, I mean, you know, we, we crashed pretty... The, the probably the most convex move in vol where we saw the biggest pickup and it was from a low vol base was Thanksgiving, right? Last November, Thanksgiving, we had this, this sell-off out of nowhere that really spooked markets. I remember that. Markets. We then bounced, we then sold off again in December. And so you had a couple of chops around towards that 43, 44 area in S&P that got people spooked and got people ready for some downside, okay? So, so you probably had a fair amount of protection buying and, and de-risking going on really late last year. And then we've had obviously, you know, more hawkish rhetoric come out, markets have sold off, but people have been ready for it, right? So there hasn't been this sudden, we didn't see that coming, right? You've seen the, the we didn't see that coming shank in markets that, that shocked people. That happened with Russia and Ukraine. Right, that happened, in, that happened in commodities. It happened in European equities, which saw a massive vol spike last, last couple of weeks, right? But in S&P, we haven't had that, right? We've had, actually, yes, the market's gradually being com getting comfortable with the Fed getting tighter. There's been a bit of a rush back towards US equities out of things like EM and Europe, China and Europe, things like that that are now looking toxic as hell. Um, and, and so why should that downside vol in Europe be exploding? Right. It's, that's not that's not been it's been too orderly a sell off for that stuff to really explode. Right. You're saying for something for vol to really spike, you need something like March 2020 when it's limit down, you limit need down. The moves to be unexpected. Right. You don't you, you know, you need people to be like, whoa, you know, what the hell was that? Right. That was way beyond my expectations. Yeah. 
But right now, people are just expecting this market to eke its way lower as the market reprices what the hell's going on, right? In terms of the Fed, you know, pulling liquidity, obviously all the stuff that's going on in commodities and the idea of recession kicking in, certainly in Europe, maybe even across the globe, you know, but the market's digesting it slowly. It's not just a sudden one-shot repricing. And it's those one-shot repricings where vol really works. So right. how come the VIX is, you know, I mean, now it's at 30, but it was at a high of what, I don't know, 39 or something like that. When I see a VIX at 39, I think, uh-oh, you know, we're, the, the apocalypse is here. But you're saying it's not. Why, why is that? No, I'm, I'm saying that the VIX going to 39 reflects a higher level of volatility, but it doesn't mean everyone who's long puts has made loads of money necessarily, right? That's what I'm saying in the vol space. Because, the actual, because what we've done is we've gone from 48.50 in S&P, right, to 41.50. That's a 700-point sell-off in S&P. So the, the at-the-money vol up there at 48.50 might have been 15, okay? If you had priced back then, right, March options, and you'd said, well, what's the, what's the implied vol for a 41.50 put? When the at-the-money vol is 15, What's the implied vol for a 4150 put, which is 700 points lower in 40, March? 50. It, it might not be 4050, but it would have been higher. It would have been 2530 or something, basically, yeah. right? So we're now down there. Vol is at 30, yeah? That's exactly what the thing was priced to be, right? So in reality, the VIX move has been purely delta. It's been purely the fact that we've moved our at-the-money strike from 4850 to 41.50. It's just the, the market, the vol market was smart enough to have already priced it. And the VIX is just reflecting the floating move from 48.50 to 41.50. That is now a new strike. It is a much lower strike, which was already priced at a higher vol. Yeah. So that, that's the point I'm trying to make that you have these, there's a big difference between what the VIX is doing and what fixed strike optionality is doing and the P&Ls associated with those. Yeah. Sure. So the VIX is, you know, the adjusted like 30 day volatility on the S&P 500, like 24 days to 37 but it's a, days. But it's not, but it's a floating strike number, right? I mean, it doesn't have a strike attached to it. Right? It's, a, it's a blend it of all the strikes. It's a blend of all the strikes. And I think, I think what you're alluding to is, you know, we'll take a look at the volatility skew graph. And on the downside, implied volatility is, is high. You have put skew. So you buy a, you, you buy a put, when, when the S&P is at 48.50, 47.50, you buy it at 41.50, implied volatility is at 25. Then when the market goes down there, suddenly your put is at the money. And now it's a volatility of, uh, of, of lower, even if volatility has risen. My question, Imran, is how, how would, if you buy a put, you buy an out of the money put, isn't that always going to happen? In what environment does that not happen? Like, and you said, oh, oh, it's, it hasn't been Armageddon. It hasn't been. The scenario where like the March 2020 scenario, basically, right? So early March 2020, vols were kind of 15 to 20 range. You know, you're buying downside puts on a 30, 40 vol, right? We went down there. The vol went to 80, right? It didn't go to 30 or 40. It went to 80, right? Because the moves were so brutal, right? We weren't selling off on a bad day, two, 3%, right? We were selling off 10% in a day, right? So the volatility reflected the fact that those daily moves were just insane, right? That's when vol really works to the downside, right? When you get 
the moves that are so big that actually vol isn't 30, 40 like it was supposed to be if the market sold off, it's now 80. Yeah, and that's where you really kill it on your Vega positions because the vol's doubled basically, right? So that's that that's that's the difference. This time round, sell-off's been fairly orderly. The realized vol has gone up, but it's gone up in a in a fashion that has kind of allowed volatility to reprice with it. And you know, there's not need, there's not been a need for vol to be up 20 vols in a day, basically, right? Yeah. Um, in Europe last week or the week before, whenever we sold off aggressively 10%. There was some of that. There was some panic, right? And the V stocks, which is the VIX equivalent, yeah. went to 65, which is pretty crazy, right? And that's what I'm telling all my subscribers to my, my membership services. Like this trade, selling European vol, buying US vol looks like a trade here because that spread doesn't really live at 25, right? That spread lives maybe at five or 10, right? But 25 is very extreme. Um, so these are the type of things, again, these are the type of things you can do with options, right? You can you can take on volatility positions relative. You can say that vol's expensive versus that one that's cheap and I think they're gonna converge because over time, volatility is a mean reverting asset, right? In that mean reversion property of volatility, you have some confidence to do to like vol positions because of that mean reversion, right? When the VIX goes to 80, you know it's not gonna stay there. At some point, it's gonna come back down you have fairly high conviction of that. So then you look for ways to sell vol um, via various you know, strategies because of that mean reverting nature of vol. And how are you thinking about the commodity uh, vol? You know, I know commodity volatility has spiked. How, how do you think about trading that? And also, um, yeah, how is commodity volatility different than equity volatility? Well, the big thing in commodities is that it skews to the upside, right? Whereas in equity, vol skews to the downside because markets tend to crash down and grind up. Commodities kind of do the opposite, right? Commodities crash up on supply disruptions and then they drift back down, right? So we've kind of seen exactly that recently, right? On the Russia, on the Russia invasion. So um, I, I would say, you know, vol spiked massively. Obviously, the grains really went nuts. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so wheat went nuts, nickel went nuts. Um, they've all retraced quite a bit. So they got to like 200 vol plus. They've come back to like 100, which isn't cheap, obviously. But then the likes of oil got to 80 vol, pulled back to around 60. Um, gold went to 30 from 15, is now back to around 20. So a lot of these vols have given back a lot of their spike. Right now, that's the vol market pricing in some more stability. I personally think there's been a bit of de-risking in commodities due to this increase in vol, increase in margin requirements. Now you know what it's like. The same thing happened in the in the GameStop scenario, right? Margin requirements went up everywhere because the assets were doing crazy stuff. So everyone just had to shut their positions down pretty much at the margin. They're just like, there's no point trading. A, I don't know if my trade's going to get cancelled, like with the LME. B, I've got to post a load more margin than I used to. I might as well just de-risk the book, right? So I think what we've seen in the last week with commodities crashing back down, both in vol and spot, is part of that de-risking that we're seeing across the space, right? I don't think the fundamentals have changed that much, right? I don't think the supply-demand fundamentals have changed. Yes, there's an element of if we're going into a recession, there's some demand destruction and all that. I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not buying that story right now. Right. I think we we would need a bit need to wait a bit longer to see that demand destruction really come through. 
and but the acute supply shortages are there for all to see. The bottlenecks are there. Like China have locked down on the back of COVID. So you've got more supply disruptions coming. Personally, I think after the end of March, maybe we get another one, two weeks of, of this type of price session. But after the end of March, I think commodities are going again. Right. I think there's a, a second phase of this as people realize just how how much the picture has changed on the supply side. And there's just going to be shortages of bloody everything. Right. Yeah. I think people, people are going to wake up to that scenario. Right. And how are you thinking about that as an investor? You know, the simple option is you could buy something like USO. And historically, USO has been a horrible investment a lot of times because it's in contango, so you're paying roll yield. Actually, now it's in backwardation, so it's not that bad. But you know, you're, you're a volatility guy, a convexity guy, if I can use that word. Um, what, you know, how, how are you looking about putting on trades to, to express your view that commodities will go yeah, up? Yeah, look, I mean, the reality is when Vol's winging around like this, it's kind of, a, it's a hot potato, right? It's quite, it's quite a dangerous thing to trade options, even if you're an options expert, right? I mean, you have to be so bang on with your timing because, you know, in an asset where the vol moving five or 10 points is a lot and now it's moving 100 points in a matter of days, I, I don't have a ton of edge calling the timing, right? I might have edge in saying, if you wanted to get bullish, what would be the optimal structure? If you wanted to get bearish, what would be the optimal structure given the volatility setup? What I don't have enough edge on, and I'll put my hands up, is calling the timing on these crazy geopolitical swings, right? So for me, the way I've played it is I had a reasonably healthy allocation in my pension portfolio to commodities. That made me some pretty decent money in the recent move, obviously, right? I even oh, had- Imran, Imran, when you say exposure to commodities, is that commodity trend following? Is that you're owning ETFs that own the futures? What no, are we owning about? ETFs primarily, right? I had a portfolio of ETFs across metals. So I, had, I had things like copper, nickel, tin, aluminium, a nice little basket of those. Okay. I had some uranium stocks. I had some uranium ETFs, things like that. And I had a bit of gold as well. Right. Uh, I didn't really, didn't really play around with my gold because it wasn't that massive the position anyway. Um, in terms of commodities though, that through that rise in commodities, the particularly the metals, they went a bit nuts. Nickel, you know, kind of tripled in two days or whatever. So I was able to monetize that spike and take some of my nickel off. So I took about two thirds of my nickel off um, at reasonable levels. I didn't get the top because that wasn't, that wasn't a tradable price. And even if you had traded it, you would have got canceled. Um, but you know, I made enough out of monetizing nickel. I made off that nickel position, I made what I would expect to make in a matter of years. I made it in a week. So I was comfortable taking a lot of that off. Shaved off some of my copper, shaved off some of my uranium last week. So I've still got them. I've just got a little bit less of them, but actually I've kind of got the same percentage allocation that I had before the commodity rip happened. So I've just kind of nicked that, nicked that performance, banked it, put it into cash, and I'm waiting. I'm waiting to see if we pull back some more in commodities over the next two weeks that I want to get back involved. I will then put some of that cash back in to some of those names and I would have just flipped them, right? I would have just traded around those, that volatility. Otherwise, I'll wait a bit longer and I'll, and I'll see what I want to do with my, with my, I've got a pretty high cash allocation right now, something like 25% in the long-term book. And I'm not in a rush to deploy it right now. Feels, feels, feels prudent to have some cash. I think it makes sense. You know, you would have thought bonds would have performed a bit better than they have lately and they're doing horribly, which is why I'm glad I've got a fairly low allocation in bonds. I have been averaging into some TLTs 
over the last six to 12 months, but I've done it very, very slowly and carefully because I was well aware that yields had some serious room to go higher. Um, you know, that kind of idea that we could go into a more deflation type dynamic where growth rolls over, right? And inflation does finally peak, right? That I, w I did sympathize with that view. I think this kind of Russia situation has kind of maybe changed the calculus a bit in terms of how persistent inflation can really be. But if we did go towards that more deflation dynamic, then, then bonds I would have thought would perform okay, which is being echoed by people like Darius Dale and, and Raul Powell. Um, but I was careful. I was careful not to get too big in the bond trade, right? Because, um, yeah, I, I'm just kind of letting it come to me, basically, right? The more it sells off, I, I throw a little bit, a few more, couple hundred basis points into, into TLTs and do it that way, basically, right? Mm. And what's your view on equities and how are you, if at all, expressing that view via options? You're saying it's hard to monetize these puts because you buy the implied volatility of 30, it goes down, you make money via gamma, via delta, but the implied volatility is now at 15 because now you're at the money. How are you thinking about puts on the downside? And also, are you know, what about exposure on the on the upside? Are you, are you owning calls? Are you owning the underlying owning puts, which is kind of the same thing as owning calls? How are you thinking about that? Yeah, so I, I think in general, it's, it's really a bit too late in the game now to be buying puts and trying to play the downside via options. I think you kind of missed that boat. Um, I, and like I say, the way I've kind of got myself defensive is just by raising more cash in my long-term yeah. portfolio, right? So that's rather than buying puts against my, and being invested, I just lightened up, right? And, and I was happy to hold cash. So I think that's been a good, generally a good trade. Um, on the way down, I have, because I've been in cash and I've been, I've been pretty light on equities, I have been trying to deploy a little bit in call premium, more call spread and call butterfly premium rather than calls. And remind us what a butterfly is again. A butterfly is just a three-legged structure where you buy a call, you sell two calls with a higher strike, and you buy another call with an even higher strike. And so it gives you a positive payoff on the upside, but in a certain zone, right? It, it, it picks a zone of profit that you are targeting by a certain maturity, and you get some pretty nice leverage when you do those trades, because obviously it's a very specific view. There's a lot of outcomes that won't get you in your profit zone. And so you're, you're getting you're getting quite decent leverage to play that scenario, basically, right? So I've been using, so as we've been selling off, probably from around 44 down to 4,200, I've been trying to do some bullish structures, throw a little bit of premium on the table to get exposure to a bit of a squeeze. It does feel like most of the market has got very bared up for obvious reasons. Don't blame them. I'm bared up as well, which is why I'm 25% in cash. But in terms of the tactical stuff, there, you know, it doesn't take a lot in terms of news flow out of Russia to make the market squeeze five to 10% quickly, right? And we saw that already in Europe last week without any definitive news, really, other than saying, okay, they don't want NATO membership anymore, but, and they're in talks, but there's nothing really coming out of the talks and Europe squeezed 10% last week, which was insane, right? So it just shows you the squeeze potential in the market. So, so I do think there's squeeze potential here. I don't know what headline's gonna to drop to trigger that squeeze, but I'm definitely on the lookout for that squeeze. I'm not gonna to lean too short tactically to get hurt by that squeeze, but what I would do is if that squeeze comes and if we manage to get back towards 44 to 4,500 on the S&P, then that is a great opportunity to start positioning more strategically bearish, maybe with September type options, um, 
to, to, to play a more deep, more meaningful move lower in markets as it becomes apparent that this withdrawal of liquidity from the Fed is, is coming. Um, they're not going to do what they normally do, which is bail out the stock market because their hands are a bit more tied, basically. Right? That's what I believe. I might be wrong, though that's my view. I think a lot of very smart people, smarter than me, kind of agree with that view, that we've never seen the Fed's hands tied the way they are, given, given the inflation backdrop, given the political mandate out of Biden and just that set up. Um, we might be looking at a 1973-74 style stagflation world where S&P's down 40%. Very possible. So this interview, I think, will air on Thursday, March 17th in the morning before... Oh, actually, it will, it will be after um, Powell yeah. on FOMC. What do you think we're going to see tomorrow on, on the 16th? And also... How do you think vol markets are positioned for it? You know, whenever you have a big event, like an earnings thing, realized volatility is likely going to be higher, but implied volatility is, is, rec is recognizing that, it's pricing it in. How are you thinking about tomorrow as a volatility event? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are making a big hoo-ha about the, the vol coming down after the Fed. And if, if, if the Fed was the only kind of catalyst, then, then that would make sense, right? But we are in a different world, right? With, with, the, with the stuff going on with Ukraine, and Russia and now China stepping in and potentially giving them some sort of military aid and the, the, the mass exodus out of Chinese markets. And then, and then you look at commodities and the potential liquidity stress coming from commodity markets and what's gone on there. There's so much under the surface to create volatility that yeah, we might get a small move down in VIX and vol post FOMC, but it ain't gonna be game changing, right? I don't think so. Whereas last year, the floor in VIX was around 15. I'm thinking it, until Russia, Ukraine gets resolved, and God knows when that will be, right? We are looking at a 25, 20 to 25 volt floor in the VIX, I would say, okay? Um, at, you know, maybe even higher, but that's kind of, you know, into, on the low end, that's where I think we're gonna definitely see a lot of support in the VIX, a lot of support in vol. And then you look at the intraday moves. People look at, oh, you know, realizes here, implies here, but the intraday swings matter, right? And the intraday swings are pretty enormous right now, right? I think last time I checked, S&P ATR average true range was around 100 points a day, which is nearly 2.5%. I mean, that equates to a 40 vol, right? So close to close realize on the S&P might be 25. But if, if intraday, including high lows, is like 40, how low do you see the vol really going, right? Because people can buy that gamma if people can buy that gamma at 20, they just need to trade it intraday and they'll make all their theta back and they'll have a great time, right? So that's the thing. There is a bit of an anchor that intraday volatility does provide a bit of an anchor to that implied vol and kind of stops it from collapsing if there's enough movement there, basically. And Imran, what, is, what does vol mean? When I say Coca-Cola has a vol of 20 versus Apple has a vol of 35, what, is, you know, what does that mean? What is 35? It's just what? an annualized standard deviation number, right? So all we're doing is we're saying, and the easiest way to think about it is if we divide it, it's because it's annualized and markets are open around 252 business days in a year. If we divide it by the square root of 252, which is around 16, Whatever volatility number you just quoted, if you divide that by 16, then all that's saying is that is how much percent a day the asset is being priced 
to move up to that expiry point. So if the volatility was 16%, you divide 16 by 16, you get one. 1% per day is the market's implied move for this asset if it's trading on a 16 implied vol. If it's trading on a 32 implied vol, 32 divided by 16 is two, it's expected to move 2% per day. Right, it's, it's, it's a pretty simple rule of thumb called the volatility rule of 16. Thank you for explaining that, Imran. I want to know though, how do you determine whether what's the time frame on something is volatile? I'll, I'll give you an example. Let's say, you know, game. Let's say GameStop it it, it goes down back to four dollars. So over the past fifteen months, it went from four dollars to four dollars. So that looks like it's not that volatile. But of course, if you measure it on a daily basis or a intra-hour basis, it's a lot more volatile. So how do you know on what time frame something is? You know, volatile, and the the corollary to that, I I guess, would be what about something that goes from thirty dollars to one hundred and thirty dollars over the course of a year, but every day it only it, it marches ten basis points up every day, and it's intraday, it's not that volatile. So how do you know which is volatile and which isn't? How do you know which time frame? So, so what you're basically asking there is like, how do you differentiate the change in the asset's price to the volatility of the asset's price, right? And that for that, you need to, another metric called realized volatility or historical volatility, right? So what we do, what we have as options traders is obviously the implied volatility is talking about the future, right? It's trying to predict. We don't know what's going to happen in the future, right? But what we do have is the past. So we have data of the past. So what we can measure is historic volatility. And what we typically do is we, we look at the daily changes in the market, right? And we calculate what is the realized volatility for the last 10 days, 20 days, 30 days, 50 days, 100 days, whatever it is. And we call that the rolling whatever day volatility. Okay. And if we're looking at, if we're trying to compare how much an asset's been moving over the last month with how much it's expected to move over the next month, then it kind of makes sense to look at trailing 30 day realized versus one month implied. Go on. So, um, you know, you're, you're a teacher, so I gotta raise my hand. Um, <laughs> and 30 day, is that measured on a daily basis? Like what if Apple opened up at 140 and it closed the day on 140, but it went to 180 by noon and then it went back to 140? You know, aren't you kind of missing that by measuring it on a daily basis? Yeah, if you just measure pure, that's a great question, Jack, as well. But if you just measure, it shows you paying attention. I like, I like it. But um, if you just measure close to closed realized volatility, right? That's what that's called, right? You would miss the intraday movement, right? So you'd be like, well, the asset didn't move today. Open, you know, yesterday is 140, today it's 140, nothing's going on. And instead it's had a round trip up to 180 and back, right? So the only way you can capture that is with some other volatility measures, right? Which factor in the highs and lows of an asset. There's various measures of realized vol. There's simple close to close, which again is, yeah, like you've just said, doesn't really capture everything. And then there's other measures that are a bit more sophisticated. There are two things I want to ask you, I don't think we'll have enough time, about the VXX move, it's kind of a crazy thing going on, as well as CryptoVol. But I think we're going to have to leave it there, Imran. And you talked about the three reasons why people should use options. There's a fourth, earn carry. Earn carry, short option. Yeah, okay. So, so... Number one is earn carry. Number two is hedging. Number three is 
uh, uh, safe leverage. Number four, directional, directional leverage. Yeah. Directional leverage. Number four is uh, different, uh, uh, more complicated positions in exposure to volatility. Volatility used. Imran, so those are the four reasons why people uh, could think about using options. Imran, why, when should people not use options? What are some reasons when people buy an option, but they shouldn't? You think, actually, it's a mistake. You really should just own the stock. That's, that's a great question. Um, I think when, just when the vol of vol is so high, okay? I mean, a good example is probably the likes of wheat, right? What are you going to do with wheat options right now? Right, vol was at 200 last week, now it's at 100. You want to buy it? It could go at 50 tomorrow. It could go back to 200 tomorrow, right? We have no bloody idea, right? So I think it's one of those where there comes a time when, when the vol of vol just goes crazy. The liquidity isn't really there, right? And that's why the vol of vol is so high because vol is gapping by tens of vol points, right? Then, then you're better off just staying away, right? And letting things settle down, letting things figure themselves out. If you desperately need to trade the asset, do it in a size that you can stomach some of the volatility and do it from a more longer term perspective. It's probably safer. And then you just let the options calm themselves down. Right. So I, th I think that would probably be the best uh, example of when not to use them. Yeah. Thanks for that. Imran, it's been wonderful having you here. Um, you're at Options Insight. You know, I understand you're having a course. When is the course and how can people uh, get access to it? Sure. So this is something I run every couple of months. It's, uh, it's called an Options Trading Bootcamp. Um, it's one of my offerings. It's basically, you know, you, you've, you've kind of shown a lot of the slides there. Um, it just covers my whole syllabus in options, really. For, for, it's targeted towards, you know, how retail people can use options. I go through, you know, all of the fundamental basics. I go through a lot of practical stuff, like we talked about hedging, restructuring hedges. Talk a bit about VIX products as well. Um, and I showcase some of the platforms out there as well that, that we use as retail traders to trade options and some of the analytics tools that you can use. I'm also pretty big in crypto vol, as you know. So I have I walk through Deribit, which is the big options exchange on crypto. And I, I showcase some of Genesis Volatilities analytics products, which uh, are, you know, are partners of mine. Um, but yeah, it's... Um, Got some pretty good feedback in general from the boot camp. So yeah, well, I'm a graduate of the boot camp, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there we go. Um, well, Imran, thank you so much and thank you everyone for watching. Great. Thanks for having me, Jack.